Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would now help us to understand the hope that you have set before us. Lord, we ask that you would cause this hope to be for us like an anchor. An anchor that enters into the inner place, into the holy of holies, and holds us to you. Lord, make us those who, because of this hope, walk with you. Those who, because of this hope, believe and trust that you will raise the dead. You will make all things new. You will wipe away every tear. And Lord, we pray that this hope that you have given to us and the high priest who has secured it for us, we pray that these things would transform everything about the way that we live. And we ask it in Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. This past week, I listened to Stephen King's novel, Pet Cemetery. Oh dear, John Wilsey says. <laughs> um, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you about the novel. And um, if you're mad about that, look, he's written lots of novels. Go listen to one of the others if you haven't, you know, if you want to be surprised by how it ends. The whole book is about sin and death. And the whole book is like a picture of life without God. Life, life in this glorious, beautiful, awesome world with magnificent things in it like relationships and the beauty of nature and then awful things like death and no way to deal with death apart from Christ. So the, the characters do not know the Lord. They do not walk with God. And they move into this, this family, husband, wife, two kids. They move into this house, and as part of the property, there's this pet cemetery. And beyond the pet cemetery, which is an eerie, kind of haunted-like place, beyond the pet cemetery, there's this ancient Indian burial ground. And what's interesting about this is that uh, the, the neighbor across the tr street tells the main character of how to find this place and, and what happens there. It's like he initiates him into it. And the main character says of that man, he should have been my father. It's almost like Adam passing down his sin to his descendants. Well, the, the, the ancient Indian burial ground beyond the pet cemetery is a place where if you bury your dead there, they will come back to life, sort of. But they're like zombies. They're not real people. So this is a Stephen King novel. And, and it's as though the, the, the man who should have been his father introduces him to this sinful, faithless, hopeless attempt to maintain life after death. But it's like a half-life. And then even though they both recognize this is fruitless, this is vain, it's even wrong to do this. First it, they do it to a cat and then... One of the children dies, and they, they, the, the man tries it with the child, and then that works out horribly, and yet he tries it again with his own wife. He keeps trying it. it it's, it's like sin. In fact, the reflections on why people keep going up there to that Micmac burial ground is what Stephen King calls it. The way he describes it is like someone describing their sin. It gets inside you, and you don't understand why you do it, and you make up these sweet reasons for Keep do, to keep doing it. It's exactly the way our sin works on us. But what's missing from that book 
is exactly what we have before us at the end of, end of Hebrews 6 and the first part of Hebrews 7 this morning. So I would invite you to open the Bible this morning, and we'll be looking together, beginning from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, and continuing through verse 10. What's missing from that book is a hope of real life after death. The reason they keep making recourse to this zombie-like quasi-resurrection is because there is no hope for the real resurrection. The reason they don't, the, the, this main character doesn't want to let go of those who die, whether it's the cat or his son or his wife, is because he has no hope that he'll be raised from the dead to inhabit a new heaven and new earth. And the reason that all of the, the horrors in the book are so terrifying, and, and you know, if you, if you let yourself enter into the story world, and you stop thinking about Jesus and God and the resurrection. It's, it's terrifying. But the reason it's so terrifying is because they don't have faith. They don't have the scriptures. They don't have the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So as we look into this passage this morning, um, I want to remind you just briefly where we are in Hebrews 5 through 7. I was hoping to get to this part at the end of the sermon last week. And uh, here we are this morning. So let me, let me draw you back to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, where the author says, about this, we have much to say. And what he's talking about is what he's just introduced in 5, 1 through 10, where he started talking about the Melchizedekian high priesthood of the Lord Jesus. And he says in 5, 11, I've got a lot to tell you about this. And then he says, I, I, the problem, it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. And then it's like there's this section here where he's trying to stir them up out of their dullness of hearing. And that goes from 5.11 through uh, 6.12. So in, in um, 6.12 he says, so that you may not be sluggish, so that you may not be dull of hearing. And then he's got another section in 6.13 through 20 where he talks about the oath that God has promised, that the promise and oath that God made to Abraham and now he's going to return to Melchizedek starting in 7, uh, 19, and 20. So you remember last week that we saw how the, the author was emphasizing the surety, the certainty of God's promise. It's unchangeable. If God says, this is what I'm going to do, because he doesn't change in who he is, you can believe he's going to do it. And then if God doubles that promise by making an oath as he swears by himself to, to Abraham, then we have two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, and so we can be confident that God will do what he has promised. And that brings us to um, what he says at the end of 6.18, where he says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So that's what he's trying to urge us to do. Hold fast to the hope set before us. And let's just briefly review what that hope is. We're talking about the hope that death is going to be overcome. The hope that sin is going to be overcome. As I was reflecting on uh, Stephen King's novel and, and those themes in it and this passage this week, I couldn't help but remember these conversations that I would have with my favorite professor in college, my, my English teacher, uh, Skip Hayes, and, and he just insisted to me that all people fear death. And, and I, I kept trying to say to him, Professor Hayes, people that believe in the resurrection don't fear death. Christians don't fear death. 
Look at, look at the stories of the Christian martyrs. And he just would not let that thought rest in his mind. He, he, could not, he could not accept that there could be anyone who would not fear death. Now, at a certain level, of course, we all do fear death. But you understand what I'm saying. Our confidence in God, our faith in God, our hope transcends and overwhelms that fear. And, and the author of Hebrews wants us to hold fast to the hope set before us, the hope that God in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, is going to overcome sin, death, hell. Look back at chapter 2, verse 15, where, where he speaks of how he has delivered, the Lord Jesus has delivered all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. And it's the hope that God has promised in Christ the hope that, it, that results from God's promise in Christ that delivers us from that slavery, that fear of death. And then he says in 619, we have this. And I think he's talking about the hope that is set before us from 618. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So you know what an anchor does. You're on a boat in the waters. You drop the anchor into the waters. And, and what he's saying is, that our hope is an anchor of the soul. So imagine your soul as a boat floating on the waters, and your hope is the anchor that is going to keep the boat from drifting away. That's, that's the imagery that he's using. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So in place of the waters, the watery depths, and the storm raging on the seas, imagine the heavenly holy of holies. And he's saying that the hope is like an anchor, and instead of the anchor dropping into the depths of the seas and perhaps catching by means of that big hook on the end onto a rock so that the boat doesn't drift away, instead of that, the anchor goes into the holy of holies where God is enthroned upon the cherubim. And thereby, the hope anchors you to the Lord so that you don't drift away from him. This is the imagery that he's saying. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, the curtain that separated the, the most holy place, the holy of holies, from the holy place. And then in verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He's going to develop this as we continue through the letter, but he's saying that, that the Lord Jesus has entered into the heavenly holy of holies and appeared there before God. And, and he's, he's pled his own blood on, on our behalf in fulfillment of the way that the high priest of Israel would take the blood of the sacrificial lamb into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it onto the mercy seat. That has been fulfilled in what Christ has done. And look at what he calls Jesus. He says Jesus has gone there as a forerunner on our behalf, which means that we're going into the Holy of Holies. It means that we are going into the direct presence of God. So our hope, our hope is what keeps us near the Lord. And our hope is what keeps us from drifting away from him. Or as he's spoken of a couple of places, both in chapter 3 and in chapter 6, falling away from him. And our hope is the promise that where Jesus is, has gone is where we are going, and that is into God's direct presence. And then he says of the Lord Jesus at the end of verse 20 that 
He has gone there as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, at this point, in 7, 1 through 10, the author is going to begin to develop what it means for the Lord Jesus to be the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And as we start into this, I I, want to try to help us get our minds around why he's talking about this. And so... So what we're going to see here in 7, 1 through 10 is that the Melchizedekian priesthood is prior to the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. In fact, the author is going to argue that Melchizedek is so great that he can even be regarded as superior to Abraham himself. And and this would, of course, apply to anyone who's tempted to drift away back into Judaism or perhaps fall away into Judaism, where they are looking to Aaronic Levitical priests to to make them right before God. So the author is arguing, look, the priesthood that we have in Christ goes back farther and is more significant than that Aaronic Levitical priesthood. It's It's even stemming from one who is superior to Abraham, the patriarch. And then as he continues in 7, 11 and following... He's going to argue that in just the same way that that priesthood goes back farther and is more significant than, than, it also reaches forward farther and achieves something better than what the Levitical priesthood was able to achieve. So what the author is doing here is showing us how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, and he's thereby exalting the greatness of the Lord Jesus and, and in a sense, also, I think, he's, he's gently saying to his audience, this is what you should have seen in the Old Testament. You know, he said in 5.11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. If you weren't dull of hearing, he seems to be saying, you would have already seen this in the text of the Old Testament itself. So let's look together at Hebrews 7, 1 through 10, where the author explains how Jesus what it means for Jesus to be the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, As we begin, I just want to sort of signal to you that I think there are really three big ideas here. The first is that uh, Melchizedek met Abraham, and he'll he'll discuss the significance of that. The second is that that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. He's going to pound on this over and over again. And then the third is that Melchizedek received a tithe. From Abraham, so the author is going to develop all of these ideas for us, and and uh, thereby show us the greatness of Melchizedek and the greatness of the priesthood that the Lord Jesus um, had had the, the priestly office that the Lord Jesus has been appointed to. So Hebrews seven one, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings. And blessed him. Now, at this point, he has introduced everything but the reception of tithes. A lot of it is already there, and he's going to develop a lot of these things um, as he goes through. Just glance down at verse 10, where the last words of the verse are, when Melchizedek met him. So you've got Melchizedek meeting Jesus at the beginning in verse 1, and Melchizedek meeting Jesus at the end in verse 10. He continues in verse 2, and to him... Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Okay, so there are all the elements right there. 
And now it's as though he's going to exposit these elements for us. So he says in the middle of verse 2 there, he is first, and the ESV renders this by translation of his name. But there's actually a passive verb form here that, that you, could, you could render something like, um, he is first, his name being interpreted, or being interpreted. And this passive form is in, going to be significant as we, as we go through. Uh, there are going to be at least four of these passive verb forms used with reference to Melchizedek. And I think that the author is doing this to draw our attention to, to this thing. He is first, his name being interpreted, king of righteousness. Which is interesting because already in the book, back in chapter 1 verse 9, you remember what we heard about the Lord Jesus there, chapter 1 verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God your God has anointed you. And so this, this king of righteousness can be contrasted with the king of Sodom even in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, you can see that the king of Sodom comes out and his first words are, give, give me. And, and Melchizedek comes out and his first words are, blessed, blessed be Abram by God most high. So there's, there's a contrast between the wicked king of Sodom and this righteous man. Now, I don't think this means he's sinless. I don't think it means he's utterly righteous like the Lord Jesus, but comparatively so. He's righteous, and what the author is doing is interpreting the two parts of his name. So in Hebrew, the Melech part means king, and the Zedek part means righteous. So his name means king of righteousness. So he is first, by interpretation of his name, uh, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. And this location, Salem, has been identified with Jerusalem, and that, that Salem part uh, is related to the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. And thus, the author says there at the end of verse 2, that is king of peace. And, and it's interesting, in Genesis 14, there are all these kings fighting. But Melchizedek's not fighting. All those kings are at war. Uh, the, the marauding pirate kings have swept through the land of Canaan. And somehow, Melchizedek has kept himself and his army, his people, the pe people of Salem, out of the fray. And so th there, there's a sense in which the fact that he's the king of Salem corresponds to the fact that he has not entered into this, this battle that seems to have swept up everyone else in the region, including Abraham. And then, I, you know, I'm pointing to all these ways that what the author says corresponds to what we see in Genesis 14 because I think that the author is almost doing expository preaching here out of Genesis 14. And I think that we should interpret his next statements against Scripture. If, if we don't interpret these next statements from Scripture, we can come to some wrong conclusions. But I'm going to argue that the author is, is rigorously interpreting the Bible here in verse 3, where he says, he is, this is Melchizedek, without father or mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. There are two main ways that people go uh, in the interpretation of Melchizedek. Uh, one way is to suggest that he is an angelic figure, maybe even a, a so-called pre-incarnate version of Christ. The other way is, is, I think, the biblical way, and that's to argue that, no, he's actually a human being, 
and the author is interpreting the Bible, not doing unbiblical speculation. And, and so I, I don't think that he's doing unbiblical speculation. When he says he is without father or mother or genealogy, what he's doing is he's saying, when you compare Melchizedek with all the other major characters of the book of Genesis, you learn who Abraham's father was, you learn who Isaac's father was, you, you, know, you have these genealogies that go from Adam down to Abraham and then from, um, uh, well, I should have said Adam down to Noah and then from Noah's son Shem down to Abraham. So you know who everyone's father is. But Melchizedek comes in and, and here, this is one of these passives when it says, um, I'm sorry, it's later in the verse or later in, in the chapter when it, when it says in verse 6, this man, the ESV renders it, who does not have his descent from them, you could translate that not being genealogized from them. In other words, we're not told his genealogy like we are these other major characters. And I think that's what the author is getting at when he says he is without father or mother. Unlike those other major figures in Genesis, we're not told who his parents were. And we're not told his line of descent. So that when it says also, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, I would suggest we should interpret this the same way. We're not told when he was born. And unlike the major characters in Genesis, we're not told when he dies or what his death was like. And then notice that next clause, but resembling the Son of God. That's one of those passives uh, that I think you could render, being made like the Son of God. Being made like the Son of God. What does that mean? Well, I would suggest that God has sovereignly orchestrated Melchizedek's life so that, number one, his name is Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Number two, he's king of a place called Salem, which will later be named Jerusalem, making him the king of peace. Number three, God orchestrates his life so that he comes out and blesses Abraham and receives a tithe from Abraham. And then God inspires the biblical author Moses so that in Moses' presentation of Melchizedek, there are all these points of correspondence between Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus. And in that sense, Melchizedek is made like the Son of God. There's another sense. Um, already in Genesis, prior to Melchizedek, th there's another figure who is given dominion and who acts as a priest. He's not called a king, and he's not called a priest, but Adam is granted royal dominion over creation, and Adam is to work and keep the garden in the way that the priests of Israel were to work and keep the tabernacle. And so I think there's also a sense in which Melchizedek is made like the Son of God, meaning he's made like Adam, the Son of God, in anticipation of Jesus, the Son of God, even before that, in anticipation of the nation of Israel, the Son of God, in the sense that the Lord said of Israel um, through Moses, Israel is my son, let my son go. And then he said of Israel, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19. So, the author of Hebrews is bringing out for us the significance of Melchizedek. Uh, one other note here. Notice at the end of verse 3 when it says, he continues a priest forever. I think what he's, what he's doing here is he's highlighting the way that whereas at the beginning of chapter 5, 
and the end of chapter 7, the author is going to talk about how the priests of Israel, they could only serve for a limited period of time. In Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, we're told that they could serve between the ages of 30 and 50, the priests of Israel. Whereas Melchizedek, we're not told that his priesthood ever comes to an end. And we read of Aaron's death, and we read of Phineas's death, we read of the deaths of these significant priests across the Old Testament, and, and the author, again, I think rigorously interpreting the Bible, is observing, hey, look, the Bible never recur records that Melchizedek reached an age where he retired from the priesthood, and we never read of him having, dying, having died. And so in that sense, he continues a priest continually, I think would actually a better, be a better rendering here. He continues a priest continually, no retirement age, no, no transition narrated, no death narrated. I think that's all he's saying. Now, having said all this, look at what he says in verse 4. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. The author wants us to feel the significance of Abraham tithing through to Melchizedek. So Abraham has conquered his enemies. And if you noticed when we read Genesis 14 earlier in the service, the way that Melchizedek describes the Lord is exactly the same way that Abraham describes the Lord. And this indicates that they are worshiping the same God. It indicates that Moses, the author of Genesis, regards Melchizedek's God as Abraham's God. And that would further indicate that by paying the tithe through, to and through Melchizedek, Abraham is worshiping through the priestly ministry of Melchizedek. I think that's, that's the significance of what he's drawing out here. And then he's going to compare and contrast this in verses 4 and 5 between what Abraham did in verse 4 with the Levitical priests in verse 5. So he says in verse 5, those Levitical, those priests, those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, not being genealogized from them, you know, who does not trace his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So these two features... Melchizedek, the man of peace, meets Abraham after the battle, blesses Abraham, and then receives the tithes from Abraham, lead him to this conclusion in verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, which is an astonishing thing for a biblical author to write. Because this suggests that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. I dare say this is one of the heavenly aspects of the Bible's doctrine. You know, how does the Bible, uh, how do we know that the Bible is the word of God? The Bible evidences itself to be the word of God by the unity of its parts, the heavenliness of its doctrine. Apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, apart from spirit-inspired interpretation of earlier scripture, I doubt any biblical author would dare to suggest that anyone was superior to Abraham. And that's what the author of Hebrews does with Melchizedek. He not only suggests it, I mean, he, you know, he, he doesn't come right out and say Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, but that's essentially what he's just declared. 
It is beyond dispute that the inferior, in this case Abraham, is blessed by the superior, in this case Melchizedek. In the one case, now here he's talking about, again, the Levitical priesthood as compared with what Melchizedek does. In the one case, verse 8, tithes are received by mortal men. He's talking about Levitical priests. Their priesthood comes to an end. They reach retirement age of 50. They die. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Now he's talking about Melchizedek. And again, I think all he's saying is we don't read about his uh, cessation of his priestly duties. And we don't read about his death. And when he says, by one of whom it is testified, it's interesting. You can look at this language across the book of Hebrews and and. I think it's in every case, when you find this particular verb in Hebrews, the Lord is the one testifying. So the author seems to be saying, God is testifying in the scriptures that Melchizedek continued as a priest, continually. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. And, you know, the logic here is really... The same logic applied if you say something like, um, in, in Adam's fall, we sinned all, right? What Adam did has implications for all of us because we all descend from Adam. And the author is essentially using that same logic and saying, look, if Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, well, then everybody that descended from Abraham, including Levi, paid tithes through Mel- uh, to, to Melchizedek. 4, verse 10, he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So what the author is doing is emphasizing the greatness of Melchizedek because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a later biblical author, David, was inspired to write that God not only swore an oath to Abraham, he also swore an oath concerning the, David's Lord, the future king from David's line. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So one of the fascinating things that the author of Hebrews has done here, without really drawing attention to it, is he's put the sworn oath to Abraham in 6.13 through 20 right next to this exposition of the sworn oath to David. Both of these passages, Genesis 22 and then Psalm 110, places where God swears an oath from which he will not deviate. The oath to bring about salvation through Abraham's seed, and then the oath to raise up the seed of David as the priest, the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Why is the author telling us this? He's telling us this because this is the ground of our hope. Look at 618 again. So that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. 7-1. For this Melchizedek. He's explaining this hope that we have. This is also, this high priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, this is the basis on which we, we draw near to God. The anchor that has gone into the Holy of Holies, the hope, Christ, this is the basis on which we draw near. Look at 416. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. 725. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. We draw near because of the hope that anchors us to the Lord himself. This hope is the reason we don't shrink back. Look at 10, chapter 10 at the end, verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This, this, this hope that the, that, the, that the priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, has conquered, this is the reason that we don't fall away. Chapter 3 Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Uh, chapter 6, uh, verse, verse, starting in verse 4 and then in verse 6, it's impossible, dot, 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 verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again. Well, we don't fall away because of the surety, the certainty of the hope. This is the reason we don't drift away to one. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This is why this hope and, and this priest according to the order of Melchizedek, this is why we don't let ourselves be hardened, let our hearts be hardened. 3.13, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the reason we fear for one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, going into the Garden of Eden, the very holy of holies in the new heavens and new earth, the promise of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear. This is why we strive for 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. This is why we respond to the call to go on to maturity in 6.1. Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Be carried on to maturity or perfection. This is why we imitate the heirs of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise in 6.12. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. This is why we hold fast the hope, 6.18. So that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. We do all this because of Jesus, the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's also why we don't have to be scared by novels like Pet Cemetery. It's why we don't have to make recourse to some Micmac burial ground. It's why we don't have to wonder about those who have gone before us. We know where they are. We know what's coming. God is going to raise the dead. God is going to make all things new. God is going to wipe away every tear. And it will be glorious. And the hallelujahs will ring out to the end of the age. Forever. The Melchizedekian high priesthood of the Lord Jesus reaches farther back and farther forward as our sure and certain hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this prior priesthood this greater figure, this fuller type. And we praise you, Lord, for the one who has inherited a better name, the one who has introduced a better hope, the one who is the guarantor of a better covenant. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to live lives worthy of this gospel. For Christ's sake, amen.